Welcome to Evidence-Based Radio. As always, you can find this and previous shows as a podcast on your favorite podcatcher or via the website evidencebasederrata.com. So it's been another long week and I didn't want to uh, not have a show tonight. So I uh poured over the deep archives and found some stories that are fitting for this time of year and um, did a little bit more fleshing out of some of it. And uh, so it was originally, I originally talked about this in 2015. So hopefully you've either forgotten it or uh, you've never heard it before. <laughs> so um, this week we are going to revisit some of the stories about folklore and cryptids. And just as a note, there will be a touch of the macabre. So if you're squeamish, uh, especially in the second half, you might want to skip. Um, I will be talking a little about a slight amount of body horror. Um, nothing extreme, but um, I will be talking about consumption and things like that. So uh, just a warning. And so folklore and urban legends tell us important things about the human mind and psyche. For instance, it's kind of impressive that monsters from all parts of the world tend to share common traits. And so this kind of showcases what we really fear. And of course, some people think that the fact that all sorts of people see the same things means that they're real. <laughs> um, but I would posit more that it it's that people have a shared understanding of what is scary at a very basic level. And a lot of that has to do with what we really think might be out there in the shadows and just beyond the limits of civilization. Especially as we've gotten more and more advanced, we tend to have more ideas about things on the margins and about how those things are potentially out to get us. And so it's also a great way to talk about early explanations of natural phenomena. Whether it be a blizzard or a plague, monsters can be used to explain why people have died in ways that would otherwise seem mysterious. And so I want to talk about some American monsters. So for instance, I want to talk about some of the perhaps more obscure, but also the famous. So we will talk about Wendigo, uh, Sasquatch or Bigfoot, the Pukwudgie, the Jersey Devil, Champ or the Lake Champlain Monster, and we will finish up with Colonial Vampires. Now, these are almost exclusively American-born tales, with the obvious exception of uh, Colonial Vampires and some sort of uh, large hairy man. Bigfoot is definitely one that has a lot of um, international, no, uh, international cousins, I should say. <laughs> um, and so in them, you'll see elements very like those of European tales of monsters, but also from other cultures around the world. This is something that is very universal. Ghosts, goblins, and monsters are a very ancient way of explaining what is otherwise unexplainable. They fill in the gaps in our knowledge that science seeks to now fill with facts. But that doesn't make them any less appealing. You know, I have said 
several times over the years that though I am a dyed-in-the-wool skeptic, I kind of enjoy watching ghost hunter and monster hunter shows. Partially, obviously, it's for, uh, you know, a sociological look at how people are, uh, you know, how people act in these sorts of situations in which they're frankly usually just working themselves up into a tizzy. And so every little noise becomes evidence of something. And it's, it's really fascinating. I find it very fascinating. Um, and you know, there are stories out there that are hard to explain. And so it's really interesting to think about that because it's important not to think that you know everything about reality. Um, obviously there are many, 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 many things that we do not know about how the world works. And there may be phenomena that we don't understand yet that is what people are seeing as ghosts, uh, for instance. And it's something that we have to continue to explore. And I think that obviously some people do it from a very um, unscientific side or from a pseudoscientific side. Um, so a lot of ghost hunters, for instance, are really into things that sound really scientific, but were never meant to be a part of that kind of research. And so uh, meters for measuring electromagnetic fields, um, certain other things that were just never meant to be used for ghost hunting. And so it is kind of interesting to see how people try to apply scientific ideas to something that is, at the end of the day, not terribly scientific. Um, and so, yeah. I mean, I've even watched Bigfoot Hunters, which is really, really the sort of height of, um, <laughs> I mean, one could argue it's on par with Ghost Hunters, but I feel like Ghost Hunters tend to have a little more appeal because the sociology is a little more upfront with them. Um, so you'll see a lot of things where people will scare each other and they'll swear that, you know, it wasn't that they scared each other, that there was really something there. But, um, if you really look at it, you can tell that they were scaring each other. And there's this, you know, way that people feed off of each other's energy in these spaces. Whereas Bigfoot hunters, it's mostly just people sitting around in the woods looking through, uh, FLIR cameras at, um, occasionally something that's moving that's warm that they don't know what it is or listening for sounds that often sound like things that I've heard either in person or, um, or, you know, have heard on the internet. And so, yeah. And so again, it's only when you believe that these shows are really nonfiction, uh, that they are actually, that they're actually finding evidence of the paranormal or cryptozoological that I worry. Um, if you just enjoy watching them, if you understand that it's just a good time, a silly, fun thing to do, then I'm totally fine with that. I don't take issue. And so, I've told this anecdote before, I know, um, more than once probably. Uh, but one of my go-to sayings is that for most people, I'm much more concerned in the case of critical thinking skills, whether or not you believe in a Ouija board than you do God. Um, I really mean that. Like, if you believe that you can contact spirits through a board that's sold by Parker Brothers as a children's game then I worry a little bit about your ability to discern fact from fiction uh, much more than I do based on your particular religion. Um, I think that there are many people, including many, many prominent scientists who believe in God or gods, uh, but few believe in Ouija boards. So I think that's really important. And um it's really important to remember that there are levels. <laughs> and so you can play a Ouija board and understand that it's the idiomotor effect and understand that, you know, what you're doing is 
not necessarily conscious, but also not by some sort of outside spirit. Um, and that's totally fine. I have no problem with that. Um, but I do worry about people who really take it seriously. Okay. So, um, just a note that much of the information from this, um, particular show has been gathered from a great book called Monsters, Evil Beings, Mythical Beasts, and All Manner of Imaginary Terrors by David D. Gilmore. And so I highly recommend that you might want to look into it. Uh, it describes monsters from around the world and it's really, really cool. Um, and again, studying monsters is really fascinating. Um, I was watching a YouTube video the other day and they were talking about, uh, people. Oh no. It was a Giorgio Sukalos, uh, documentary, which I don't recommend if you enjoy, uh, your sanity. Um, I have a high tolerance for Giorgio Sukalos that I don't think other people should have to have. <laughs> so, um, but they were, he was on Malta and they were talking about Cyclops. And all I could think about was, have you ever seen an elephant skull? <laughs> like, it's very clear that if you, you know, there were pygmy dwarf, pygmy elephants in the Mediterranean at one time. And, um, it's just, it seems very simple to me and you don't need to create a monster or a, um, a monstrous being in order to explain these things. And of course they were talking about how it was one of those, you know, how could, ancient people have built such big stones and things like that. And it's like, you'd be amazed what a lot of time and a lot of people and a lot of rope can do. I'm sorry, but uh, <laughs> even if it was earlier in time than we think it, than modern people think it was, I'm still pretty sure it was just people doing it. Um, so that is a different show though. We're, we're going to put Giorgio Sukalos and his aliens away for tonight. <laughs> and so um, the first monster that I wanted to talk about was the Wendigo. Now, this is something that is more known about now today. Um, it certainly was featured on both X-Files and Supernatural. Um, I forgot to check if Supernatural is still on. If it is, who boy. Um, I think I stopped watching around season five. Uh, please don't tell me how many seasons there are now. It's, it's going to make me very sad. <laughs> anyway, the Wendigo is the star of many Northern bestiaries in both America and Canada. Many tribes, including the Algonquin, Ojibwa, and Ashinaabe, speak of the Wendigo in various forms. The Wendigo is at heart a cannibal. And there are two forms it can take, the giant monster and the human turned one Wendigo. The giant version of the Wendigo is not only a cannibal, but is also associated with natural weather events, including ice storms, gales, and tornadoes. Outbreaks of mass hysteria occurred when a Wendigo was thought to be near. Usually male, the monster is said to have a heart of ice with a huge mouth, foot-long claws, and large yellow eyes like that of an owl. Usually the monster is described as extremely noisy. When queries are made of the origin of the Wendigo, it is said that the creature has always existed, like the sky or the water. It is timeless and everlasting, a very part of the fabric of the world. And as such, it is treated as a universal answer to mysterious questions. When someone wanders off, never to be seen again, they were eaten by a Wendigo. If someone has a mental health issue or begins to lose their faculties, a Wendigo has touched them. Famine, cold snaps, lack of game animals, all blamed on the Wendigo. It is a true boogeyman, responsible for all of the things that happen outside of the norm. And so again, that is so classic and so ingrained in the ideas of how all monsters work, that they're usually described, these sort of um, foundational monsters, as just being a part of 
the world, that you can't have a world that doesn't have monsters in it because bad things happen. Um, and so it is very, very, um, unsurprising. And so moving into the realm of humans, a person can also be said to be quote unquote going Wendigo. This version of the legend parallels more closely stories of demon possession. It is said that if caught early, a person may be cured, but if not, or the treatment fails, then the person must be killed to prevent them from crossing over to cannibalism, an extreme taboo in these cultures, and in many other cultures, obviously. Various causes are attributed to the change. One can be bewitched, or can succumb to a gnawing hunger, or one can commit a crime considered comparable to cannibalism, such as murder, or even the very thought on a cold winter night when the stores are depleted of cannibalism can cause a person to turn into a Wendigo. In fact, even having a vision of a Wendigo during a vision quest without ever committing even a thought crime can lead to becoming a monster. Many tribes believe that the, that the giant monsters are in fact doomed human souls who have left their body. Importantly, there is a connection between monster and man that links both to the evil inherent in the act of cannibalism. The Wendigo is not a scapegoat for human wrongs, but rather a reflection of them. And tellingly, Wendigo transformations are most common during famines or in the cold winter months when starvation can set in. In a paper by folklorist Robert Preston, this story is quoted. He, the unlucky hunter, goes out every day trying to feed his starving family and himself. Their plight becomes desperate. A time comes when one of the party begins to look longingly, though slyly, at another. This person is tempted to kill, so as to eat. It becomes an obsession with him or her. At last, chance offering, it happens. The person kills, and soon he or she is eating. He has passed from being a human to beastliness. The rest of the family realizes that they have a watiku to cope with. All they have heard about such monsters comes into their minds. A great dread overwhelms them. The marrow in their bones seems to melt, and they have no power to move or fight. And so, yeah, that is very, very um, textbook of how this sort of story is told. And so um, Howard Norman interviewed hundreds of Cree Indians in the early 1980. All of the older members of the tribe agreed that one could go Wendigo very easily. Isaac Grays, a Cree elder, he writes, told how a man going began to ask his own brother how it was in a nearby beaver's lodge, in the lodge, because he saw his brother as a fat beaver and he wanted to eat him. And so, so prominent was this folklore that Wendigo psychosis was, and may yet be, a viable psychiatric diagnosis. And in researching the topic, I found an article from the 1970 American anthropologist titled, A Nutritional Factor in Wendigo Psychosis. The article discusses the fact that nutritional deficits may be the cause of the psychosis, and notes that the traditional treatment is to give the patient bear or other animal fat. Interestingly, there is a related condition among the Inuit called Pibloktok, I am sure I am mispronouncing that, which bears a striking resemblance to Wendigo and is also cured with the consumption of animal fat. It may be that there are vitamins stored in the fat, such as thiamine and vitamin C, which help the body to overcome the sickness and heal. So the Wendigo is definitely a great introduction to the subject of monsters and their roles in both folklore and in pre-scientific ways of explaining the world. Now, of course, the most famous monster in America is probably the Sasquatch or Bigfoot. And so, again, I don't want to spend a lot of time on this because it's the most famous and we all know about Bigfoot. Um, it's just that... It seems to be something that we are really, really interested in being true. Even I am interested in it being true. Like, I think it would be amazing. I've said this, obviously, many times, um, that it would be great if Bigfoot really did exist. Um, but, you know, 
it's it's again one of these places where we are looking for something on the edges, something in the shadows. And so we are out in the woods and it's, you know, I've been in in uh, deep woods and it can be really scary just because you realize all of a sudden how far away you are from everything else. And that can be really disconcerting. And if you see something out of the corner of your eye, if you hear something, um, I have heard fisher cats, which are terrifying sounding. I literally said to myself when I heard them, I was like, oh, apparently Bigfoot is around. Um, and so I think it's really, um, unfortunate that, um, Bigfoot probably doesn't exist because again, I think it would be amazing and fascinating if Bigfoot did exist. Um, but, uh, another thing is that I have, um, seen a motion, uh, stabilized version of the, uh, Patterson Gimlin film. And I want to think that that's authentic because it's very hard to think that it's faked. Um, but when you actually look at the motion, um, the one that has been, uh, the motion fixed one that doesn't have the shakiness, it looks more like a dude in a monkey suit. Um, and that might just be my particular, you know, um, biases and prejudice, but it just doesn't look like it's that impressive when you have the motion stabilized version. But, you know, even primatologists that I have read, you know, are like, it would be really cool. And obviously there is still huge amounts of underdeveloped wilderness or undeveloped wilderness, which I would like to say I would, I would enjoy them to continue to be undeveloped. Um, and so, you know, it, it's, it's, it's the dream. <laughs> it really is. Um, the cryptid that could be real. Um, if we ever really found out that there was Bigfoot, I would be for, for one, very excited, but I am not holding my breath. Uh, yeah. So let us move on and talk about a creature that is actually found in the folklore of Massachusetts. And so that is the Puckwudgie. And so these creatures are described as small human-like figures who have their origins in Wampanoag and uh, Wampanoag and Algonquin folktales. So Puckwudgies are basically the American equivalent of trolls or pixies, or at least the Massachusetts uh, native population's version of it. They are said to be able to shapeshift into animal form and to appear and disappear at will. They could be nice or naughty. Most tales favor the latter, with stories of Puckwudgies pushing people off of cliffs or using poison darts, much like uh, pixies. <laughs> Truth be told, um, you know, it's always funny when people are talking about, oh, pixies. It's like, mm, have you ever actually read about pixies in the original uh, tales, they're pretty awful. <laughs> uh, and so they're associated with Freetown State Forest and Cape Cod. So apparently, if you want to try and spot something paranormal on this side of the Connecticut, your best bet is actually October Mountain near Lee. And so apparently there have been sightings of Bigfoot, UFOs, and ghosts on the mountain, all three. Um, and so... Uh, Pukwudgies are, they're, they're really kind of a, um, they are very, very localized. And so they're in that sort of, um, they're sort of a triangle in, um, the, I think it's called the Bridgewater Triangle and sort of south of Boston and, um, it, with, and, and kind of fading into Rhode Island. And so apparently that's supposed to be a place where a lot of other things happen as well. And, um, the other thing I think of when I think of Pukwudgies in relation to, uh, European folk tales, um, I was just listening to a, um, YouTube, uh, story about knockers, which were, um, supposedly they were basically mischievous, uh, creatures that plagued miners. And so miners would be deep in under the earth 
and they would hear these knockings and they would think, you know, that there was something there. And sometimes they would see things out of the corner of their eyes again. Um, and it kind of reminds me of that as well. Um, okay. So we are going to take a uh, short breath break for some PSAs and some show promos. And then when we come back, we're going to talk briefly about the Jersey Devil, um, which is just, it, it's just a kind of delightfully odd and just such a weird tale. So do stay tuned. You are listening to Evidence-Based Radio on WXOJLP 103.3 FM in Northampton. Hi, I'm Charlie. I fight fires and I save lives. My name's Renee. I'm a cardiologist. I save lives. My name's Anthony. I'm an EMT. I save lives. You don't have to be a professional to save a life. Firefighters, doctors, and others save lives. You can, too. Don't wait. To learn more about the warning signs and how you can help prevent suicide, visit save.org. In a crisis, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. Has anyone ever asked you, don't you have enough records? Adventure Rocket Ship is new and old. Indie pop, psych pop, post-punk, shoegaze, lots of chiming, jangly guitars and catchy melodies from both artists you know and obscure 7-inch singles from around the world. Adventure Rocket Ship, Tuesday nights, 9 to 11 p.m. on Valley Free Radio. Join hosts Jacqueline and Mari on Alternative Lately every Sunday from 9 to 11 p.m. on Valley Free Radio, WXOJ, LP, Northampton. Every week, we bring you the latest in alternative pop rock music. We'll highlight underappreciated talent and undiscovered artists, bands, and collectives you didn't know you needed. Be sure to follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Alternative Lately. If you're looking for new current music, start here. Thanks for asking, but I'd rather not send you nude pictures. I'm camera shy. I already said no. Under my clothes, I'm a robot. My webcam is broken. I'm worried they'll get passed around school. I have a rash. I have nudophobia. I have lizard skin. I'm a vampire, so I don't show up in pictures anyways. Your badgering has really killed the mood. When someone is pressuring you to do something you don't want to, how many ways can you say no before they get the message? Let us know at thatsnotcool.com. Brought to you by the Ad Council. Hello, everybody. I'm DJ Panic, host of OK Asian. I bring you a wide selection of Asian artists combining genres like rock, pop, hip-hop, and R&B every Saturday at 12 a.m. with a repeat on Mondays at 1 a.m. on Valley Free Radio. Tune in to Straight to the Music on Sunday evenings with yours truly, Miasha Lee, giving you a dose of serious R&B only on 3FM Northampton. The Town Crier, my new music and arts and entertainment show, airs Thursday morning from 7 to 9. Every week, we update listeners on what's happening in our vibrant communities. We'll talk to gallery owners, brewers, poets, restaurateurs, and more. We'll also take a musical road trip to one of our amazing musical scenes. Tune in from 7 to 9, Thursday morning. And we are back. And as promised, we're going to talk about the Jersey Devil. So um, at this point, you probably have heard about it. But just in case, uh, one of the more famous versions of the story begins in 1735, when a woman living in the small town of Leeds Point, New Jersey. Um, and so Leeds Point is in the center of the state in an area referred to as the Pine Barrens. And so according to this legend, Mrs. Leeds had 12 children and was ready to give birth to the 13th. Various versions of the tale are told, but in all, the results are that this baby turned into a devil with cloven hooves, a horse's head, bat wings, and a serpent's tail. Now, it's quite possible that this was a baby born to a real woman, which was deformed in some reasonable way. 
It's also quite possible that this tale is entirely made up. Um, it's also quite possible that it's kind of a uh, literal wives tale in which uh, one of the versions says that the reason that the baby became a devil uh, was because on her 13th child, Mrs. Leeds was kind of done with having kids. Um, and so it was basically like, the devil can have this one. <laughs> don't really want another one. Um, and, you know, I think that's perfectly reasonable. <laughs> and uh, so there are also other versions of the origin story, including some that name the woman Mrs. Shrouds instead of Leeds. Several different towns claim to be the birthplace of the Jersey Devil. So it's got a lot of cachet at this point. Uh, and so interestingly, there are documents which point to the existence of both a Mrs. Leeds and a Mrs. Shrouds who lived in the general area during this time period. The devil was seen supposedly in the early 19th century again, uh, and this time by some rather famous people. It was spotted by Commodore Stephen Decatur of naval fame when he was testing cannonballs. Apparently, he tried firing at the beast, but missed. <laughs> it was also witnessed by Joseph Bonaparte, former king of Spain and brother of Napoleon, who witnessed it while hunting. During the week of January 16th to 23rd, 1909, the devil was spotted by hundreds, if not thousands, of people. Prominent among them were Councilman E.P. Whedon of Trenton, who claimed to have been awoken by flapping wings outside his bedroom window. Sightings continued into the modern time, and livestock deaths, often chickens, are regularly attributed to the Jersey Devil. Now, early sightings may have been of sandhill cranes, which can weigh around 12 pounds, reach 4 feet in height, and have a wingspan of 80 inches. Um, you know, they're much more rare today, but back in those days, they would have probably been a lot more common. Cranes would also explain the howling or whooping noise associated with the Jersey Devil. Interestingly, the Jersey Devil shares some of the lore associated with Mothman. Mothman is described rather similarly and is known to be a quote-unquote harbinger. Both creatures are said to make appearances before tragic events. Mothman was said to have predicted the, the collapse of the Silver Bridge, whereas the Jersey Devil is said to make appearances before the outbreak of wars. And so, again, the Jersey Devil seems to be one of these creatures that lurks around the edges of civilization. It is found in an, in, in an area notorious for misshrouded swamps and forests. So you might not think of New Jersey as having anywhere that's wild, but the, the Pine Barrens are pretty wild. And if you, um, you know, I've seen some documentaries of people being out there and it looks pretty spooky. I have to say, um, I can definitely see where someone's, uh, you know, mind would wander towards the, uh, fantastical and creepy because they're, you know, it's, it's the exact right place to have those kinds of, uh, feelings and beliefs. Now, of course, it is a local legend, and as such, people attribute basically whatever strange or unexplained phenomena that occurs around there to the devil. So if something walks across the roof of a house, it must be the devil. Cries in the night, the devil. Again, killed chickens, the devil. What many fail to realize in this day and age is that many creatures, once banished from the eastern seaboard, such as black bear, coyote, and cougar, have returned. These real animals most likely account for some of the supposed evidence, and I would not doubt that there is also occasionally uh, a bout of teenage hijinks and hoaxes that help keep the tale alive. Um, and of course, the other big thing is that having a local monster is actually good for business. Tourists will come from afar and wide to catch a glimpse of your monster and will usually end up spending some money while they're there. And so um, I even attended the first annual Jersey Devil Con, uh, which was a sci-fi and fantasy convention many, many years ago now, uh, when I was able to meet the uh, late 
and great uh, Sir Terry Pratchett. Um, that is still one of my uh, best memories. He was such an amazing man. But uh, let us move on and let us now switch from the land, which we've been mostly exploring, to the water. And so Champ, or again, the monster of Lake Champlain, is often referred to as North America's Loch Ness Monster. Champ even has a P.T. Barnum connection, with the famous showman offering huge rewards for its capture between 1873 and 1887. Unfortunately, no one got to claim the prize. Few cryptologists deny the possibility of Champ's existence, states W. Hayden Blackman in his Field Guide to North American Monsters, and many openly accept the creature, believing it to be a plesiosaur, zooglodon, or other unknown or erstwhile extinct creature. Champ seeker Joseph Zarzinski has even given it a name, Balua Aquatica Champlainensis, which translates to huge water creature of Lake Champlain. Champ is a great example of a monster that has been manufactured into a phenomena. The area around Lake Champlain abounds with examples of Champ-related shops and restaurants. A signboard in Bulawaga Bay lists six columns of names and dates of sighting. However, when pressed, locals will say they weren't sure exactly what they saw and that it might just have been a large sturgeon, which are endemic to the lake. Pieces of driftwood have also been located that bared a striking resemblance to the supposed monster. And so the monster, quote unquote, was first described by Samuel de Champlain in his journal. There is also a great abundance of many species of fish. Amongst others, there is one the natives call Chawasaru, which is of various lengths, but the largest of them, as these tribes have told me, are from 8 to 10 feet long. I have seen some five feet long, which were as big as my thigh, and had a head as large as my two fists, with a snout two feet and a half long, and a double row of very sharp, dangerous teeth. Its body has a good deal the shape of a pike, but it is protected by scales of a silvery gray color, and so strong that a dagger could not pierce them. And so that is the sort of seminal description of the so-called uh, monster. However, that sounds a lot like, again, a huge sturgeon. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, Champlain's description is certainly that of a large fish of some sort, and definitely not some sort of giant sea serpent. Joe Nickel, uh, famous professional skeptic and uh, spoil sport, um, has actually written at length about Champ. He notes that according to the various modern reports, Champ is between 10 and 187 feet long, has one to four or more humps or up to five arching coils, and is black or has a dark head and white body, or is gray or black and gray or brown moss green, reddish bronze, or other colors, possibly being drab or shiny, scaly or smooth, or even slimy. Moreover, it possesses fins or a pair of horns or moose-like antlers or elephant ears or a tan or red mane or glowing eyes or jaws like an alligator or, again, had none of these. Overall, it looked like a great snake, a large Newfoundland dog, a steam yacht, although traveling too fast to be one, a horse, a Florida manatee, a submarine periscope, a whale, etc., etc., etc. Champ is, one must conclude, entirely fictional. Much like the famed Loch Ness Monster, Lake Champlain is just not big enough to sustain a breeding population of some sort of descendant of an ancient plesiosaur, which is what proponents usually cite as the origin of the creature. In addition, much like, actually differently from Loch Ness, the lake is relatively shallow in large areas, which would make hiding enormous sea serpents relatively impossible. That is the one thing about Loch Ness is that it's, it's rather deep. Um, 
And so technically something could be hiding there, but we've talked about that before. It's almost certainly just eels. Um, And so, you know, in the end, it's mostly just a fun bit of uh, flim flam that attracts tourists, which, you know, worse things can be uh, set up in order to attract tourism. And so it seems to be the fate, unfortunately, of many modern monsters to be reduced to tourist attractions. We are closing the doors on the unknown and pushing these fables farther and farther into the realm of fiction. Despite this, there is still a wonderful world of myth and legend that bears reading about and studying. Again, it can tell us much of human nature and the human experience. And so let us finish up tonight by talking about New England vampires. Let's first revisit a skeleton found in Griswold, Connecticut, back in 1990 in a forgotten cemetery. This was one of those identified, again, as a New England vampire, the most famous of which was Mercy Brown, who may have inspired some of the elements of Bram Stoker's Dracula, because clippings of her case were found among his papers. And we'll talk about her in a moment. The skeleton of a man, formerly known only as JB55 for the initials placed with brass tacks on his coffin, was identified back in 2015. Forensic scientists compared genetic material from the skeleton with online genealogical databases to identify the man as John Barber. This case has been a mystery since the 1990s, Charla Marshall said. Marshall is a forensic scientist who worked on the project. Now that we have expanded technological capabilities, we want to revisit JB55 to see whether we could solve the mystery of who he was. Research done on the remains at the National Museum of Health and Medicine in Silver Springs, Maryland, suggests that he was a poor farmer who would have had a life of hard work and who died from tuberculosis, which was the common thread among most people who are thought to be vampires. The researchers were able to use new DNA techniques and computer algorithms to come up with the name Barber. They then looked for Barbers living in Griswold in the 1800s and found that in 1826, a 12-year-old boy named Nathan Barber had died. His father was listed as John Barber. The researchers had found a grave near JB55 that read NB. 13 on the lid. He had suffered from a poorly healed collarbone and an arthritic knee. His tuberculosis was so severe by the time he died that it left lesions on his ribs. And so it's not a huge surprise that his family might have suspected him of being a vampire. Jennifer Higginbotham, a DNA researcher with the U.S. Armed Forces Medical Examiner System, notes that tuberculosis was extremely contagious, and those suffering from the disease would often appear pale, with blood appearing around their mouths from coughing, and with receding gums that would have made their teeth look larger. Once interred, suspected vampires were often dug up to look for signs of life. Unfortunately, as we will note in a moment, several natural processes can make a corpse look like it has continued to grow hair or nails and to have fluids that escape from the mouth. When this happened, the heart was usually removed and burned. Barber's heart was would have already have rotted away in this case, because he was dug up well after he had first been buried. So instead, his skeleton was rearranged so that skull and limb bones were arranged in a sort of skull and crossbones position atop his ribcage. This was their desperate attempt to keep the vampire from returning from the grave, Higginbotham said. Michael Bell, a folklorist and authority on New England vampires, quotes an 18th century doctor in a 2013 essay. The emaciated figure strikes one with terror, the forehead covered with drops of sweat, the cheeks a livid crimson, the eyes sunk, the breath offensive, quick and laborious. He has documented 80 cases of therapeutic exhumations, usually by family members, to stop a suspected vampire from continuing to affect the living. Now, as I've mentioned several times already, the most famous of these was Mercy Brown. By 1892, the Brown family was in trouble. 
Father George had already lost his wife, Mary Brown, in 1883, and his eldest daughter, Mary Olive, had followed just six months later. The younger daughter, Mercy Lena, would succumb in the winter of 1892. And finally, Edwin, once a healthy teen who worked as a store clerk, had become ill. The local doctor diagnosed him with consumption, but in this small area, grief and adherence to folk beliefs caused the town folks to be unsatisfied with this error. Answer. And so they took things into their own hands, with a group of men going to the town ceremony to examine the graves of the three fallen members of the family. Both Mary and Mary Olive looked properly decomposed. However, Mercy, dead some two months or more, looked very much still fresh. It appeared that her hands and nails had grown, and she looked to still be full of fresh blood. And so they concluded that she must be a vampire, and that she was rising from the grave to suck the life out of Edwin. And so the only thing to do was to remove her heart and liver, burn them, and give the ashes to Edwin to drink. Dr. Metcalf reports the body in a state of natural decomposition with nothing exceptional existing, stated the Providence Journal. When the doctor removed the heart and the liver from the body, a quantity of blood dripped therefrom. But this, he said, was just what might be expected from a similar examination of almost any person after the same length of time from disease. The article added, the heart and liver were cremated by the attendants. And so this was from um, an article at the time. And so it was a little bit... Um, Apparently, the people of Southern Rhode Island were thought to be a little more backwards and a little more uh, country than people in Providence and in the northern half of the state. Um, and so this was definitely something that they thought was quite the interesting thing to talk about. So who was Dr. Harold Metcalf? He was the local medical examiner and a graduate of Bellevue Hospital in New York. He very much did not believe that there was anything wrong with Mercy's corpse, having been buried only nine weeks earlier and in fact having spent much of that time in a stone crypt due to the fact that she died in the winter when you couldn't bury people. And so he did his best, but the townsfolk really were wanting to do this ritual. And so uh, they did it and what they did was they took the heart and the liver and they buried them on a rock near her grave. I've actually been there. Um, and so I've seen both the grave and the rock and they burned them and they took the ashes and they gave them to Edwin. Unfortunately, in the end, the ritual did not help poor Edwin, who died shortly after. At this point, consumption just was not something that was curable. And so Southern Rhode Island was the epicenter of vampire belief in New England, but it was not alone. Stories come from all of the states in New England, including Massachusetts. In New England, the vampire superstition is unknown by its proper name. It is there believed that consumption is not only a physical, but a spiritual disease, obsession, or visitation. That as long as the body of a dead consumptive relative has blood in its heart, it is proof that an occult influence steals from it for death and is at work draining the blood of the living into the heart of the dead and causing his rapid decline, noted George R. Stetson in an article entitled The Animistic Vampire in New England from the 1896 edition of The American Anthropologist. Can they truly be blamed? Faced with the awful ravages of consumption, it is not surprising that people would turn to folklore and superstition. There was nothing that medicine could do at that time for someone with consumption. It was only with the advent of antibiotics that it became truly treatable. And so that is one of the reasons that antibiotics was considered such a miracle, is that it could cure things like, like tuberculosis, which had been plaguing man for thousands of years. And so it was until then, though, it was something that once you get consumption, you know, some people did get better, but most people died and there was nothing you could do about it. And if someone in the family got it, 
it was very possible that other people in the family would get it. Um, there's even an idea that people can be um, non um, can be asymptomatic carriers of it. So uh, there is a wild speculation. There's nothing that's specific about this, but um, some people have suspected that maybe Edgar Allan Poe was an asymptomatic carrier because pretty much all the women in his life died of consumption. <laughs> um, and so on the other hand, uh, you know, medicine back then was pretty sketchy. And so for instance, homeopathic therapy was actually created partially in response to what was called heroic medicine. And so this was mainstream medicine at the time and included such quote unquote treatments as bloodletting, cupping, purging, blistering, and the administration of large doses of substances such as calomel and theriac. Calomel or mercurous chloride uh, led to led long-term users to develop, well, mercury poisoning. Theriac was not particularly toxic, though it generally involved viper flesh and opium, among a host of other ingredients. And so in the end, it's really not a lot of surprise that the people of New England would have looked to an alternative when medical science could give them no hope. They were, after all, sturdy New England farmers. Um, and that also means finding reasons for why something is happening so that they can have that bit of peace of mind, even if it doesn't actually help. All right. That is all the time we have for tonight. I hope you enjoyed and I hope you have a great Halloween weekend. Thank you for listening. You have been listening to Evidence-Based Radio. Evidence-Based Radio is a member of the Planetside Podcast Network. To learn more, go to planetsidepodcasts.com. The theme song is Widgen by Bird Boy. Purchase the full song at smarturl.it slash birdboy.